Good morning. Please go ahead and text whoever it is you were meeting for lunch. Tell them that you're not going to make it because I have what feels like 37 pages of notes. But we'll try. Please uh, turn on your iOS or Android device or the old school pages printed thing, whatever they call that, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We'll begin at verse 1. Read with me if you would. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew in his mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, I would, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and he said, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed the, to those who, <clears throat> who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather up what's left, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign performed, they, said, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Very familiar passage. And this particular miracle is the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels, which shows its significance, probably important. And I wonder if you're like me, we've heard the story dozens of times, and perhaps we don't even hear it anymore. Maybe its familiarity relegates it to an almost background status in our minds so that this morning we're going to look at it afresh, as they say. We're going to delve into this. Our house church is starting a new study on one of the Gospels with the supporting idea that God is exactly like Jesus. A really smart scholar put it this way. We see over and over again in this book of John that Jesus was the mind of God become person. Isn't that a cool quote? The mind of God become person. John's gospel is focused on one idea. And, and what is that? Jesus is God, right? He says things like, all things were created by him and through him, and nothing that's been made has not been made through Jesus. No one has ever seen God except Jesus, who is himself God. These are written so that you might, what? Believe in Jesus. And we know that the evidence of Jesus' deity, historically, is bound up in the, in the miracles that he performed. And not the least of which is his spontaneous feeding of a huge crowd, right? The account of the loaves and fishes describes his most massive, widespread miracle. Did you ever think about that? <clears throat> the folks in the crowd, they weren't spectators. They were participants 
It's an intimate miracle where Jesus provides food directly into the hands of those that were tired and hungry. And it's a creative miracle. There are restorative miracles, there's transformative miracles, but he just made stuff out of thin air. I mean, how do you get your head around that? It's a staggering testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, by this time in history, he's become hugely popular. Folks know that this guy is a true miracle worker. He has got the goods, and most folks in Palestine know it. There was great expectation across the land. They were aware of the promise from Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet that was greater than Moses would come. They call it messianic fever. You've probably heard that term. There was intense sentiment among the folks in the region that perhaps this is the guy that will deliver us from the Romans. In parallel, the Jewish establishment had cultivated an intense hatred of Jesus. Him and his crew, if they could, would, they would kill them, and perhaps more than anything because he was wildly popular with the crowds. Jesus was very aware of the, pot, of the plot to kill him. So they had come back to Galilee, kind of in the north, to continue ministering to the towns there. Let's see if this works. Now, I've provided a map that actually has a boat. And you can see Capernaum on the west side where the population centers are. And Jesus and his disciples go to the east straight across. And since I found this on the internet, it makes it all true. (laughs) Well, John begins the story in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. By the time of John's writing, the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias for the current guy in Rome. Sometimes Jesus needed to get away. How many of you know he, he got tired? Because, I mean, he was going after it all the time. So he and his disciples would would withdraw from the crowds as often as they got, not only to rest and to pray, but to spend time alone with his disciples and teach them about who he was in a more intimate way. Mark 6 tells us that the disciples at this point in time had been out preaching and teaching. They're all tired. They're over there, like I said, on the west side where the population centers are, Capernaum and Tiberias and all of that stuff, and they head east. And they took a boat across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee to a spot somewhere south of Bethsaida, which who knows who else was from Bethsaida. Remember the beginning, he calls Peter and Andrew and Philip. They're from that town, or at least that region. And so from, the, from Capernaum to the other side of the lake is a jaunt of about four miles. So they set off in that little boat. <clears throat> Throngs of folks had been keen on watching Jesus and his disciples follow them around. I mean, this guy's healing everybody, right? It's probably easy for them to figure out where Jesus was making for. They could see him, and so that's where they headed. It's easy to see the direction of the boat was taking, and so groups of folks hastened around the top side of the lake. See the north side there? you got this little path. Jesus and his disciples, as soon as they landed, tried to retreat up a hill... But a massive group materializes. Matthew actually calls it a large group from all over the place. It's likely that the crowd was swelled by groups of pilgrims that were making their way to Jerusalem by the eastern route. 
The time frame was probably around Passover, as John notes. He said, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. And thus the crowds were probably bigger just from the pilgrims that were making their way around. Well, apparently, the crowd just, the crowd just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And in, ta- in typical fashion, what does Jesus do? He engages the crowd. I mean, he's tired. He's probably hungry, and he's like, yeah, i gotta, I got to talk to him. Luke says he spent the whole day talking to them about the kingdom and healing everybody. It's getting late in the day, and everyone is tired and hungry, and the disciples say, Jesus, send these people away so they can get some food. Problem solved, right? Let's just send them away. They can fend for themselves. Go, go find you something to eat. Jesus responds, great idea, guys. We'll make some announcements. I'll do a closing prayer, and we'll dismiss the crowd. Is that what he said? It's not. On the contrary, he says something out of left field completely. You give them something to eat. Specifically, he says in the John's account, where can we buy bread so that we can get them something to eat? What? Can you imagine the look on the disciples' faces when he says something as ludicrous as, well, you give them something to eat. Let's get some money and figure out where to buy them something. Verse 6 says, He said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip responds, Lord, thou art the Christ. Thou canst feed this massive multitude. Is that what he said? Of course not. But that is exactly the response I would have given. It made sense to direct the question to Philip. Remember, he was from Bethsaida. He would have local knowledge of the region, right? So probably knows where to get some locally sourced stuff. Philip crunches the numbers and concludes, what's he say, half a year's wages aren't going to buy enough food to give these people even one bite. I'm quite sure I would have responded something even more drastic than what Philip said. How often do we conclude that we can't do something for the Lord because we weigh our challenge We calculate the cost. We throw up our hands and we respond, I don't have the time. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the ability. I just can't. I don't have what it takes. Is that what our natural inclination is? It is. Lord, help us. At some point, Jesus says, go check out what the crowd has in the way of food. Andrew shows up with a boy who's got a picnic lunch. He's got five loaves and two little fish. Andrew says, well, here's some bread and fish, but what good is that among this massive crowd? And we should note at this point, the crowd had swelled, as I said, kept getting bigger and bigger. It's beyond biggie size at this point. It's gigantic. It's uncontrollable. All four Gospels say there was about 5,000 men. Matthew says, That's not even including women and children. It just makes the point. So where there are men, there are women. Where there are men and women, there are children. That's how that works. So probably there's between 10,000 and 20,000 people. That's huge. They're tired, they're hungry, and there is no way to get them something to eat. We should note, too, food was a huge deal back then, right? This is 
ancient Palestine. It was scarce, it was expensive, and most folks lived hand-to-mouth. And think about the loaves that Andrew showed up with. They're not bread as we think of it. They're small, flat barley cakes, like big crackers, probably about the size of a graham cracker or a small pancake. They're not the French baguettes or rainbow bread that we're accustomed to. And they're probably not the fat loaves pictured on the flannel board at Rolling Hills Assembly where I first heard the story. They were like massive and they're giving out these chunks. These were just little crackers. And by the way, barley was the food of poor people and they gave most of it to animals. The two fish were little sardine things that swarmed in the Sea of Galilee. They were caught and pickled as a side, no doubt to help choke down barley cakes. So Andrew's comment accentuates the gross inadequacy we see here. What are these cakes and fishes for so many people? Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that the main lesson that we draw from Andrew and Philip is don't be like the faithless disciples. Have you heard this? Well, no doubt, they were slow learners. They had seen him heal. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen massive miracles from this guy. How could the 12 ever ever exhibit a lack of faith in Jesus? I'm not so sure this is accurate or even appropriate to think of them as the faithful disciples. I think they were expressing what we all think. What in the world are we going to do? What good is this ridiculous amount of nothing in the face of my giant problem? And I'm sure that's where some of us are today. Do you have an insurmountable problem that you have no idea how you're going to get over that? We all do at some point, don't we? So the interactions of Jesus and Philip and Andrew are recorded to articulate the absolute impossibility of the situation. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. This is a desolate place with no food anywhere nearby, and they have no resources to speak of. There is no reasonable solution to this problem. Again, have you ever been there? Yeah, that's a scary place, isn't it? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't say to Philip and Andrew, Get thee behind me, Satan. Be cast into the foul swines and into the lake with you. He does not say that. Jesus does not rebuke them. He understands the human heart completely. He didn't reject the meager amount of stuff they brought him. He didn't say, well, what's this? He accepted that. He took it. And my wife made this observation as we were talking. Jesus pushed through the doubt and fear, even when it was expressed with hopelessness. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Again, in contrast to, hey, send them away. Just let's let them go. Release them. And he says, sit them down. Mark 6.40 says, sit them in groups, is what the master said. Again, can you imagine the looks on the disciples' face? Okay, first of all, he doesn't send them away. Now he wants them to just sit down. They're hungry and they're grumbling. The disciples get the folks to sit down. Now, isn't that a stunning look at the influence and authority of Jesus? They did what he asked them to do. I mean, it's late in the day and this is a run-and-ruly crowd that's tired and hungry. They just go ahead and sit down because Jesus said to do it. So verse 11, then, as we come to this part of the narration, says, 
It's got to be the most understated act of creation ever. With a traditional blessing, Jesus gives thanks and distributes the fish and bread to everyone, and they get plenty to eat, whatever they could hold, and there were 12 baskets left over. There was no trumpet from heaven. There were no earthquakes. There was no angelic host in the sky. There was no super shiny guys beside him magically appearing. There was no lightning. There was no thunder. And my friends, maybe there is. That's just Steve throwing this out. Maybe there is in the understatement of this miracle, a massive, of this massive miracle, a unique glimpse of, of Jesus, our king. He simply feeds a massive group out of nothing. It's kind of like, yeah, that's what I do. Mark 6.42 said they were all ate and they were satisfied. They got full. When the people had eaten their fill, the disciples gathered up the fragments that were left, Right? And again, 12 baskets full left over. It was a full meal. It was a complete meal. It was an incredibly precise meal. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm not sure exactly what to make of it, but 12 basketfuls left over for 12 disciples, that's pretty cool, right? Some have theorized that the actual happening was a significant time of sharing. Jesus inspired people to share. If this was a time of sharing, how did they all get full? That's baloney. The account specifically states that they all ate and were satisfied, meaning that their bellies were full. There was leftovers. Jesus provided a huge amount of food for 20,000 people. Well, naturally, the crowd wanted to force him to be king, right? They had seen him heal all kinds of diseases, but now this just seals the deal. We saw him healing. He can feed everybody, too. This is our guy. This is our guy. And if Jesus himself had wanted to be king or initiate some kind of a coup, this would have been the moment, right? This was the crux right here. But instead, the most powerful being that has ever existed at the absolute pinnacle of his popularity, what does he do? He disappears. He withdraws. That's not what he was about, was it? What are some things that we can learn from this miracle? First one's pretty obvious. Need is ever-present and widespread. We should be at the ready to help folks when we can, not only helping to meet material needs like food and clothes, but helping folks find the food that endures to eternal life, right? Ultimately, introducing people to Jesus who can save them not only from their physical hunger, but their spiritual hunger. Jesus uses inadequate people who yield their inadequate resources to him to meet needs. It's not in John, but the other gospels state that Jesus gave the disciples to distribute to the people, that he handed the fish and the loaves to them and they gave them out. The technical description says Jesus fed them through the agency of his disciples. I like that, sounds cool. The five loaves and the two fish came from a boy's lunch. Although they were completely inadequate to meet the needs of the hungry crowd, they gave the little that they had to the Lord who blessed it and multiplied it 
so that they could distribute to the people. When we know Jesus, he will use us to meet the needs of others. And sometimes that sustenance is straight from his hand. Number three, God is generous. He doesn't just barely meet our needs. He abundantly supplies. We might think on the, on the contrast John draws in this account between Philip's words, there's not even enough for everybody to get one bite. Andrew says, but what is this for so many people? Jesus distributed to them as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. In fact, all three accounts in the Bible where God miraculously feeds a crowd show that he always gives them more than enough every time. We serve an overly generous master, so never judge your problems and your challenges in light of your own resources. Jesus is all-sufficient. I mean, what a cool word, all-sufficient. Well, that covers it. He's all-sufficient. God demonstrates that he is big enough to shatter our finite expectations and abundantly provide for our needs, especially where Jeremiah prayed, O Lord, behold, you have made the heavens, and you have made the earth by your great power and your your outstretched arms. What does he say next? Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. God is Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, as I said a minute ago. God is in Jesus. Nothing is too difficult for him. Jesus' all-sufficiency can be thought of in three ways. Jesus is in control of every situation. Let me say that again. Jesus is in control of every situation. Remember that Philip, that Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed these? Verse 6 says, this he was saying to test him, for he knew in himself what he was going to do, right? Jesus wasn't stumped in asking the disciples to brainstorm on how they could solve a perplexing problem. He knew what was going to happen. Again, he himself knew what he was going to do. Perhaps the Lord is inviting you and I this morning to let that word germinate down in our hearts. Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He knows what he intends to do in your situation. Wouldn't it be great if our hearts genuinely trusted him with all of our hearts? Because he knows what he's going to do. Jesus is not limited by inadequate resources. You've probably heard this. And this is great. Little is much in the hands of Christ. I've heard that since Sunday school, haven't you? Well, it's true. When Philip came up with the cost estimate of the money they didn't have, Jesus didn't say, go take a collection then, because, yeah, the shortfall is huge. See how much we can get. And Andrew offered his apology, but what are these for so many? What are we going to do with this little bit of fish and cakes? Jesus didn't say, ah, there's probably more food in the crowd. Go see what they've got. Come back with some more. He didn't say that, did he? Jesus wasn't limited in any way by the meager lunch. And frankly, he is not limited when our responses say, 
I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have the talent to accomplish anything. We've got to fight that and look to Jesus. Watchman Nee said it this way about this particular verse. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on it. And finally, Jesus is sufficient to meet our spiritual needs, our spiritual needs. Now, if you're familiar with this chapter, you know that John seems to use the miracle of the feeding of the crowd as a springboard into the interactions Jesus has with many of that same crowd who chased him back across the lake the next day. It's during this interaction that Jesus utters the words that are probably Possibly, and in my humble opinion, the most beautifully poignant words that have ever been uttered by human lips. He says things like, the highest calling is to believe in me. I'm the bread of life. And you can have this bread. I'll give your soul the satisfaction that it craves. Nothing can take you from me once you're mine. And you're going to live with me forever. Well, we could spend many months pondering what's called this passage, the bread of life discourse. But honestly, that's for another time and someone way smarter than me. But it is important to know that this isn't just a story about feeding hungry stomachs. It's about who Jesus is. It's about who Jesus is. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the bread of life. So in practical terms... Some ways that we can respond. A good start is to simply surrender, make the switch to surrender to his unfathomable love. That love cost him everything on the cross, didn't it? And we've got to surrender to that love. This might be a good opportunity to refocus our attention and energies toward our real position with Christ. He's the very bread of life, but he is our master. What does that make us? We are his slaves. Those of you who have had a chance to read the Dulos, the Dulos Principle, I would invite you to pick it up again and read it. If you haven't read it, it's really helpful. Finally, how do we participate in making the bread of God, the substance of Jesus, part of us? I mean, what does that look like? It's one thing to say in your head, well, okay, I'll accept you, Jesus. You're the bread of life. Well, frankly, it's super, super easy. We feed our minds. We feed our hearts. We feed our souls on this bread by studying his book. Very simple, right? His book. Remember just a few weeks ago, Jim invited us to re-up our commitment to consume God's word. I think we can do that every day, right? Amen. Every day. I'm going to consume his word. I'm trying to do that. I heard somebody say, I don't recall where I, where I got this. Let's refuse to have a vague notion about the stories and the ideas found in Scripture. Let's continually read it, study it, and meditate it so that we know it, not vaguely, every day. So I'm going to ask you to please get the Bible app and go to bed with scripture feeding your head every day so that that bread that is Jesus 
can begin to feed you and germinate in your souls. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your scripture. We are grateful that you provided a record that shows us exactly who you were, how you were, and who you are to us. And Jesus, we honor you this morning as our master, as our savior and our Lord. We pray that you in turn would help us to become more like you in seeing you each and every day. Help us to pick up your word as we leave here and that day by day, Lord, we can just delve into it. Thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.